Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. We're so grateful that you found us. The JCBC Podcast is a collection of sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. Right now, we're in a new series. It's called How to Be Human. We hope if you're in town or close by, you'll stop in and join us 11 o'clock Sunday mornings. Until then, subscribe and follow along. Now, these past few weeks, we have been in a new series called How to Be Human. And what I've attempted to do in these messages that God has laid on my heart is lay a foundation about, about what it means to be a human being in the eyes of God. We began with the notion that when God created humankind, God thought it was a very good idea. And part of that very good idea is you. That we're created, as the psalmist said, fearfully and wonderfully in each of our mother's wombs. And yet the psalmist also says, what are human beings that, that you're mindful of them, Lord? That you're even thoughtful of who we are. We're, we're made just a little lower than God, the psalmist says. And yet you have crowned us with honor and with glory created in the very image and likeness of God, though at times we don't really reflect that image, do we? That we're created in such a way as to bear the very image, to contain the very DNA of the divine, but not just the image of God. We settled a couple of weeks ago that we're created in the likeness of God. In other words, we are made in such a way to be able to live like we are made in the image of God to be fruitful and multiply in this world, to be creative, and not only be creative, but to do what God does, which is care for that which is created. With a kind of royal responsibility, we're charged to care for the earth and all that is in it, including one another. But because we don't always act like that, we are in need of a Savior. (laughs) And because we were in need of a Savior, God came in the person of Jesus Colossians 1, 19 reminds us that in this person, Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This was the one who claimed for himself a title that we don't use a whole lot. You and I call him son of God. We call him king of kings, lord of lord, all these regal titles. But Jesus preferred one so much simpler, son of man. The truly human one, the one who can show you what it was intended to look like from the very beginning. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the fullest. This is what made Irenaeus of the second century say that the glory of God, the thing that brings God the most delight, is to see a human being who is fully alive. But the trouble is, you and I go through seasons in this journey we call humanity, humankind. We go through the seasons in which we will have experiences and encounters, or maybe seasons of experiences and encounters, that begin to diminish the very God-likeness in which we were created. We will go through suffering and loss and pain and rejection. We will go through seasons in which 
we succumb to self-defeating patterns of sin that in many ways unravels who it is that we were designed to be from the very beginning. In other words, I may want to put it this way, we will go through some seasons that actually dehumanize us. Sometimes we think that, well, we're going to sin just because we're human, but really sin is the very thing that dehumanizes us from what God had in mind in the very beginning. And I want to talk for just a few moments to somebody who may be feeling a little dehumanized today, to someone who may be sitting where you're sitting and you're thinking, all of this sounds so very good, it sounds so very clean, so neat, that God has designed life to be so full and abundant that you could somehow live content and at peace with one another and with God, and yet something has happened in your journey or maybe a series of somethings that has dehumanized you. So I want to talk to you for a few moments about becoming rehumanized in a dehumanizing world. And I cannot think of a better story than the one we have right in front of us in Luke chapter 8. It begins in verse 26 with these words. Then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee, As he stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he did not live in a house but in the tombs. And I want us to stop right there for just a moment, because sometimes, as it is with sacred Scripture, there's so much crammed within the simplicity of a verse or two that we overlook how much is being proclaimed. There was a man who is said to have been a man of the city. It's an interesting phrase, a person of the city. It's used in other places in the New Testament, including the Gospels. In one place, it happens the night that Jesus goes to the house of a Pharisee to have dinner, and this woman of the city comes in and pours this expensive perfume all over his feet, and everyone in the house knew what she did for a living. The woman of the city had a notorious vocation. Can we just keep it PG and leave it there for a moment? We don't know what this man's vocation was, but to be a man of the city means he was well acquainted with life in a metropolitan environment. Maybe he had a vocation, and maybe it was a successful vocation. Maybe he had a job. Maybe he was known in the city, and the city knew him. But something happened along the way that unraveled because the very next line that we just read said that for a long time he wore no clothes. In a culture in which clothing defined who you were, clothing could indicate by the patterns on the clothing and the colors of the patterns who you belong to, where your family was from, what clan you were a part of, or what tribe. It elevated a sense of dignity if you could wear certain colors, and it revealed a certain void of dignity if you couldn't. But yet in a world like that, this man of the city wore no clothes. Something had stripped him of the dignity of what typically defined the human experience in his region. He had no identity and no community and no family to speak of. 
We're told that he didn't live in a house, but in tombs. He didn't live in a house, a house that symbolizes a sense of stability, a sense of place, a sense of security, a sense of accomplishment. He didn't live in a house, but lived a curious phrase, Luke gives us. He lived in the tombs. Nobody lives in tombs. The only ones who reside in the tombs are they who have died. Luke is wanting us to imagine the reality, the possibility that you can walk through life looking alive but be dying on the inside. This man was among the walking dead. And the portrait that Luke tries to paint of this man, he's introducing us to someone who had been dehumanized in every conceivable and definable way. In the early 2000s, there was a a movie called Rain Over Me. It was starring Adam Sandler. It was about this man who lost his whole family during the September 11th terrorist attacks. Lost everything. And he went through life in the city with these headphones, listening to loud, hard rock music 24 hours a day in order to drown out the voices of his wife and his kids who he no longer could see or really hear. He slipped into this kind of spiraling, somewhat catatonic state. And I think of him when I think of the garrison demoniac as we're reading about someone who has been stripped of every dignity that defines his humanity. And I'm curious if you know anybody who does a really good job of walking through life looking like they are alive, but dying on the inside. Yeah. So the story continues. We pick up the story in verse 28. When Jesus saw, or when he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted, shouted at the top of his voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me, for Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for many times it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wilds. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? He said, legion. For many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now, before we can get to a place where this kind of story speaks to this kind of moment, we have to unpack the reality. This is a story about demons. (laughs) This is a story about the demonic, right? So what does that really mean? Because we have to do some unpacking about what demons are if we're to find anything that connects us to this. Now, there's a word that I'll introduce. Many of you already know that the word hermeneutic is just a fancy word that means how we interpret life. There's a hermeneutic about how you you enter into your family, how you interpret the conditions of your family. We have a hermeneutic in, in terms of how we enter and see the world. How do we, how do we interpret the, the world around us? That's our hermeneutic. 
But there is a biblical hermeneutic, and that is how we approach the Scriptures and interpret what the Scriptures are intending to say. And every time that we come to a passage like this that includes the demons or the demonic, we, what we have in front of us is typically a hermeneutic of extremes is what I want to describe it as today. Because on the one hand, there are those who on one end of the hermeneutical extreme, they would interpret this as, let's not read any further, let's take it at surface value, let's not take any kind of social conditions or historical context in place, and we will let Hollywood interpret for us a kind of Hollywood hermeneutic. And so now if we're reading about these demons, we, we see these, you know, these little critters with you know, bifurcated tails and pitchforks, right? And if we go to that extreme we make a mistake. Because what we do when we interpret the demonic passages that way is we say, well, because I don't deal with any kind of demonic problems in my life, this passage must be about somebody else. And this passage is not about somebody else. It's about us. But on the flip side of the extreme, there is another hermeneutical extreme, which is to assume that all of these cases are simply mental disorders. And, and, and in which case, instead of letting Hollywood give us our hermeneutic, we let the DSM-5 give us our hermeneutic. The DSM-5, the, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, version number five, is where we go to help identify clinically certain mental disorders that are deserving of either care or medicine or treatment or therapy. And it is a valuable tool in helping interpret where we are and, and those who need particular kinds of care in this world. But if we go to an extreme and only interpret every demonic passage as simply a mental illness, and there's some truth to that, there's some truth. Is it possible that we might be able to find some of these conditions located in the DSM-5 and understand what this man or others may have gone through? Sure, yeah. But if we leave it there, you know what we do? we do the same disservice to the text and to ourselves as if we took on the other hermeneutic. Because we say, well, because I don't have a mental disorder, then this passage must be about somebody else who does. When that's not true. I think it's about all of us. That means I believe there is something going on in this text that is more profound than the hermeneutical extremes. In fact, it's a it's a hermeneutic of the heart. A hermeneutic of the heart says that it's possible that something that's going on in him might be happening in you and me. And if we can find ourselves in the text, if we can find ourselves in this moment in the life of Jesus, then we may be able to experience the same kind of transformation that this man does. So the truth is, we all have demons. All of us have demons. So how are we going to define what that even means? One way to talk about it is this. The demons are the shadows that attempt to hide the light of God. The demons, the demonic in us, are the shadows that attempt to hide the light of God in us and around us. And, and I, I wanted to put kind of a thought together to help frame our own hermeneutic of the heart as we approach this. And here's, here's how I put it. Demons are all the broken uh, all the broken and dehumanizing patterns of sin and injury and even childhood wounds that return to visit and torment us and compel us to remain in the shadows, walking in the dark, living in the tombs of our own making. 
Now, I'm going to read that all over again because some of you are trying to write fast, and I see smoke coming up from some of your Bibles and your notepads. I want to read it one more time, but hang with me. Go with me at this pace. Demons are the shadows. The shadows within all of us that attempt to hide the light of God. Demons are all the broken and dehumanizing patterns of sin and injury and even childhood wounds that return to us to visit and to to torment us and to compel us to remain in the shadows, to behave in the shadows, to keep thinking in the shadows, to make choices in the shadows, walking in the dark, living in the tombs of our own making. When was the last time you thought seriously about the shadowed places of your life? Because it's in the shadows lurking there the torment that keeps us in the same lifeless place that the garrison demoniac found himself in. See, the shadows are those places that compel you to keep living in the shadow. The, the demons, the, and when you face them, when you acknowledge them, it's a scary place. Have you thought about the patterns that keep creeping up from time to time in your life. You're like, why did I do that again? Why did I say that again? How did I get where I am again? It's the demonic in and around us. And facing the demonic, facing the shadows, sometimes of our own making, sometimes the shadows of someone else's own making, when, when we get there, we see a part of us that we begin to despise. C.S. Lewis was talking about this, and he was saying he was looking into the mirror of his own soul, doing the hard work of looking in past the persona that we sometimes perfect in order to project into the world. When you look past the persona that you've learned to perfect, you see something that's not as comfortable. And this is what he says. And there I found what appalled me, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. Just listen to that language again. It's beautiful. And there, when I looked close enough, long enough, I found in me something that appalled me, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name is Legion. See, the demonic in your life are those patterns, those shadowed patterns that keep you from looking in the mirror too long in the morning. Because if you look in the mirror too long, you might just see behind the eyes that stare back at you something that is truer and more real, more authentic than the persona that you have projected. And then you've got to deal with all that mess. And you realize how many problems are in me, how many demons. Well, I am legion. The legion is a military term used by the Roman Empire, a military term that describes as many as 6,000 trained soldiers. When Jesus comes to this man and says, what is your name? And he says, legion, it was as if he was saying, there are multitudes of highly trained warriors waging war within me. Do you know what it feels like to feel as if you don't know which way the next wave of attack will come? I'm 
My name is Legion. Because the demonic or shadows, demons, come in every shape and size. We all have demons. Sometimes our demons come rising up out of a deep-seated shame that we carry with us in the pit of our chests. Sometimes the demonic for us comes in the shape of fears that we can't seem to resolve or get away from or shake, fears that haunt us at every turn. Sometimes the demonic or the shadows in our life come from anger. Anger that we can't get in front of and we can't get underneath it. We can't seem to identify it and we can't shake it no matter what we do to try to overcome it. And it torments us and it keeps us bound. See, I've, I've got demons just like you. I've got shadows. I do with my friends and colleagues in ministry and with my good therapist. I do what I call some shadow boxing <laughs> all the time. Shadow boxing Shadow boxing is where you stand toe to toe with the very thing that threatens to undo you. And you try everything you can to undo it before it undoes you. But did you notice in the text that it says time and time again they tried to bind this guy, wrapped him in ropes and chains and shackles to try to contain the thing that was destroying him. Did you, have you ever been to a place where you have done everything you can to try to contain the thing that controls you only to see that thing that controls you break out of the chains and keep on controlling you? See, it's important to be able to name the thing that bonds you or binds you because if you can't name your demon, you can't be set free from it. So Jesus comes to him and says, what is your name? It's a little bit like the story in the Old Testament in Genesis where Jacob, whose name literally, Yaakov, means trickster, supplanter, heel grabber, one who trips up everybody else in order to get his own way. Yahov, the trickster, is now camped out on the river Jabbok, and the next day he knows his brothers, and a whole company of men will come to make right what Jacob had done wrong, and he wrestles all night long, we're told. And depending on how you read the text, he wrestles either with a stranger in the night or an angel of God, or in some texts, God himself. You know who he's really wrestling with, right? Jacob was wrestling with Jacob. And he holds on to God or the angel of God. And he says, I will not let go until you bless me. And then God touches him in the knee and injures him and then makes him say his name. What is your name? And Jacob is forced to say, my name is Jehovah. Trickster. It's me. I I am the supplanter. I am the trickster. And when he named the thing, he got a new name, and his life was changed. It reminds me a little bit of the moment where Jesus walks up on this paralytic. He's there by the pool of healing, the pool at Bethsaida, and he says to the man who's been there for 38 years, waiting for healing, and he walks up to him and he asks the question, do you even want to be made well? What kind of question is that? Yet, until you ask, what is the name of your demon? You can remain paralyzed by it. So he comes to this man, what is your name? My name is Legion. 
It's a scary thing to name your demon. It's a scary thing to see your shadow. Because you can do a pretty good job just kind of uh, prancing through life as if the shadows don't exist. You can go through life hiding it from other people. You can hide it even from yourself and live in a state of denial, which, by the way, is a shadow. But when you see the shadow for the first time, it's not easy to reconcile. Uh, I came across this video, a 16-second video that is a 16-second sermon that is maybe the best sermon I've ever seen to describe what it looks like to actually confront the demonic in yourself, to see your shadow. It's of a little boy who sees literally his shadow for the very first time. I want you to watch and see his reaction. I don't just watch it. You got to watch it again. Watch it again. Watch it. Play it again, there, Gene. Watch. Look, I walk and it walks. Wait, I hide. It hides. I step out in the light. Wait, it's chasing me everywhere I go. What about? Right. I took that video and showed my therapist. I said, "That's what I got to talk about." Because every time the pattern emerges again in me, my own sin pattern, my own fear pattern, my own shame pattern, whatever you want to name that demon, I mean, I am legion. Every time I see the shadow, I want to scream like this little boy, like, oh no, you found me again. But until you see the shadow and name the shadow, that shadow will haunt you the rest of your life. You can be free from it. But not until you name it. When was the last time you were honest about the thing that keeps you tormented? Yeah. Because you can deny it your whole life and remain tormented, living in the tombs of your own making. Or you can meet a man who can do something with your shadows. So in the story we read, it continues on in verse number 32. Now, on the hillside, a large herd of swine, oh, this ought to be interesting, was feeding. And the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Now this, my friends, is what to do with your demons. This is to meet a man who knows what to do with them. And and there's debate over why is this part of the story in the story. Mark doesn't tell it the way Luke does. It's a little different. Matthew doesn't tell it the way Luke does. It's a little different. But Luke, there are many different ways to understand it. One way is this. Pigs, swine, are part of the list of unclean animals in Jewish tradition. That means that they were in a Gentile territory. So one way to proclaim this text is that Jesus has stepped into a territory of Gentiles, meaning that this healing that he has to offer is for the whole world and not simply a select few. Another way to interpret why the pigs here is because it's a demonstration that Jesus has authority 
over every seen and unseen thing that torments you. And don't forget, in the long line of miracles that happens just before this one, he's on the sea, he's on the boat in the middle of the sea, and Jesus calms this storm at sea as a demonstration that this one, the Christ of God, has, has uh, authority over the wind and the rain and the storms of life. And this story is to demonstrate that he has the same kind of authority over the wind, rain, and storms that you can't see that come with us and rock the boat of the soul. And another way to interpret the pigs, why the pigs, is to give a foreshadowing of where this whole thing goes, that at the end of the day, there is one who will take all of the demonic, all of the shadows that have vexed us our whole life, and will plunge them into the sea. And as the great book of Revelation reminds us that there is coming a day when the sea will be no more. But I think maybe the most profound way to understand why the pigs is maybe the simplest explanation. Because sometimes you need to see the thing that has controlled you destroyed. You need to see that the thing that you thought had final authority over you must in the end submit to one who has authority over it. At the end of the day, don't we all need to know that there is one above the clouds who at the end of the day has the final word? Yeah. And so he comes and he sends them into the sea to demonstrate that, that even the, the thing that controls you will not control you forever. That there is a freedom that comes through Christ that can only come through Christ. That there is a relinquishing. See, I was in Nashville, Tennessee one year preaching. I was in college. And sometimes you just got to see the thing that controlled you destroyed, right? So I'm preaching this sermon at this church in Nashville. And after the sermon, this woman comes up to me. I don't even know what I was preaching about. It was something about being set free, something about the life that we have in Jesus, something about John 10, 10. I came that you might have life and have it to the fullest, that God may delight in the aliveness of you, something like that. And at the end, this woman comes to me, and she says, I feel like my music has controlled me for so long. Now, keep in mind, we're in Nashville music city environment matters she says i have been controlled by my music and i've spent all of my money on wait for it cds and tapes that was before the i world came onto the scene and, and i said well what are you gonna do you gonna pray about it you want me to pray with you about it she said no she said i need to get rid of them so okay so i stayed at the church while she went to her house and brought back crates and I met her at the dumpster behind the church. I felt a little bit like Judas because I was saying to myself, Marcia, man, we could sell all this and give the money to the poor. What a waste. Or, or I'll take some. I mean, you know, you know. Yet we met at the dumpster, and she gave me some, and she held some, and I said, these are not mine to destroy. They're yours. And one by one, she ripped the tape out of it. She broke the CDs. She broke the cases to the CDs and dumped them into the sea and walked away free. Now, did she have those demons return? I don't know. 
I just know that sometimes you got to see it go. C.S. Lewis talked about this too. In his book, The Great Divorce, he talked about, and of course he uses great imagery and imagination to describe the mysteries of God. He says there's this angel standing outside in the court of heaven, and this oily, shadowy man comes, broken by life. And on his shoulder, there's this red lizard that represents his demon, represents his shadow, represents all that has held him and made him live in the, in the shadows and live among the tombs. And this tail of this lizard was like a whip that kept tormenting him. And he would whisper into his ear constantly the lies like a tape recording that kept, kept, living in the, kept him living in the tombs. These voices, these lies that he kept believing. And the angel said to him, do you want me to destroy the lizard? No, 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 you can't destroy the lizard. No, I can. I can destroy the lizard. Do you want me to destroy him? No, no, you can't, because if you destroy it, you will destroy me, because he believes the lie that we all believe, that sometimes we become dependent upon the very thing that is destroying us. And we think that we can't be separated from it, because sometimes we prefer the unhealth that we know over the health that we don't know. But I can, I can kill it. I can get rid of it for you. No, you can't. Don't touch it. Don't touch it as the angel begins to touch it. See, you can't do it without killing me, but I can do it without killing you. But see, it even hurts now as you're reaching out. And he said, I didn't say it wouldn't hurt. I said it wouldn't kill you. Isn't it interesting that in this story, the man cries out to Jesus, don't torment me. And we mix it up a little bit thinking that it's the demon speaking, but it's the man who says, don't torment me. Because he's been tormented enough, and sometimes we believe that we would rather stay in what torments us than go through the pain of freedom. The angel said, I can. I didn't say it won't hurt you, but it won't kill you. And he takes the lizard, and he breaks the lizard, and it falls dead. And suddenly, the man begins to stand upright. He rises tall, as tall almost as the angel himself, and he's full, and the oil and the shadows dissipate, and even the broken lizard comes to life and is now a stallion that becomes his companion. Do you know that sometimes if you, if you trust, the thing that was your shadow can become your companion. It can be there and not have dominion over you anymore. And, and, and Lewis says in the final analysis that this weeping that the man was doing, he described it this way. They were liquid love and brightness. He was crying tears of liquid love and brightness. When you commit to yielding to the one who can do something about the lizard on your shoulder, something about the demon that vexes you, something about the shadow that seems to follow you no matter where you go, when you submit it is possible for you to live in such a way that you are no longer vexed by the thing that used to torment you. And you're like, well, what happened in this story? Well, let's find out. When the swine herd saw what had happened, they ran off and told it to the city and to the country. Then the people came out to see what had happened, and, and when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, fully clothed and in his right mind, 
Fully clothed and in his right mind, he had been covered again with the garments of dignity and humanity. He who was dehumanized was now rehumanized in Christ, sitting at his feet, fully clothed and in his right mind. See, shadows may dance around for a while, but my beloved sisters and brothers, don't forget that you can't have a shadow without light somewhere. You can't have shadow without a light. And it's learning to yield to the light that is in you and around you in the person of Jesus that allows you to see the shadow and fear not. You're like, well, what did he do to be set free? I think the secret is hidden somewhere in the beginning of the first verse that we read. Here's what we read. We read, as he stepped out on the land, a man of the city who had demons met him. (laughs) Don't underestimate the power of meeting him. Because when you meet him, you meet the Son of Man, the truly human one, the one who is willing to absorb out of you all the dehumanizing impact of the journey that you've made. And absorbing all of the dehumanizing demonic shadows of your life, he restores you with life that is truly life. So what do I do about it? You do what the demoniac did. You fall on your knees and you say, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of God?